I have no obligation to be honest with the media just because they're just as dishonest as anybody else. So, you, so you're admitting, sir, you were not being truthful in that clip, right? Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. Elsewhere in California on KFOI Red Bluff Redding, KKRN Round Mountain, KGOE Eureka. In Oregon on KYAQ Central Coast, KSO Cottage Grove, and KEPW Eugene. Lancaster, Pennsylvania is WLRI in Maui, Hawaii on KAKU. Columbus, Ohio, WGRN. Palinville, New York, WLPP. Grand Rapids, Michigan, WPRR. New Orleans, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico, KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire, WNHN. Fayetteville, Arkansas, KPSQ, Seattle, KODX. Janesville, Wisconsin, WADR. Minneapolis, St. Paul, AM 950, KTNF. And coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the internets, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, blanketing the globe five days a week. As usually hosted by Brad Friedman of bradblog.com. But today you have me, Angie Coiro of In Deep with Angie Coiro. Nicole Sandler and I continue to cover the show throughout the week. As you may know, Brad and Desi are home with his family dealing with an illness. They could use your thoughts, your prayers, your good wishes, whatever form your gratitude and support might take, they could use. First up today, a news roundup, then an extended interview with Shannon Watts, founder of Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America. So much to cover first. John Bolton's seat as national security advisor has been filled. Donald Trump picked up the State Department's chief hostage negotiator, Robert O'Brien. This sets a record for the most security advisors a first-time president has ever had. In noting that, the New York Times also points out there doesn't seem to be obvious daylight between O'Brien and Bolton when it comes to hawkish worldviews. What a surprise. What is obvious to anyone who has ever worked with Trump or watched anyone work with Trump is that it's just a matter of time until O'Brien asserts himself as an independent thinking human being and gets the axe. Then the White House occupant can set a record with its fifth national security advisor. Someone who keeps towing the Trump line is Corey Lewandowski. He sat for grilling by the House Judiciary Committee on Tuesday. What followed was a bout of nastiness and smart-ass comments, about four hours of that, until real questioning got underway. That was courtesy of Democratic counsel Barry Burke, and there is a man who knows how to drill. Check this out. Isn't it a fact, sir, that contrary to your testimony that you voluntarily appeared in front of the special counsel, when you were called to provide answers to the special counsel, you indicated your intent to assert your rights under the Fifth Amendment not to self-incriminate. Is that true? Not to the best of my recollection. Is that in the report, sir? Isn't that true, sir, that you refused to testify without receiving immunity? I don't believe that's accurate. I'd be happy if you could show me that is in the report. I'd be happy to answer it. Sir, are you, is it your testimony under oath that you never received immunity prior to answering questions of the special counsel? 
That's a question for Special Counsel Mueller, and I won't be answering mechanics of the investigation. My question to you, sir, is did you refuse to answer the Special Counsel's questions without getting a grant of immunity protecting you from having your words used against you in a criminal prosecution? I've asked and answered your question. Are you denying, sir, that you refused to answer questions and asserted your rights under the Fifth Amendment not to self-incriminate unless the special counsel gave you immunity? I've, already, I've asked and answered your question, sir. Sir, do you agree with your statement that you would assert the Fifth Amendment if you believed you were in trouble, to quote your words to Fox News? I don't think I was any under, under any obligation when speaking to Fox News to not engage in hyperbole if I so chose. I was not under oath at any time during that discussion, but I've been very forthright today. After the less skillful questioning by Congress members, Lewandowski wasn't really ready for this intense, relentless volley. You can hear him getting flustered. There's that boilerplate response of asked and answered. Instead, he fumbles into I've asked and answered. Well, obviously not. Obviously, he's not questioning himself. That's the cracks in the facade beginning to show there. You know, there's a key difference between this experienced lawyer and elected officials. It makes me wish they had a lawyer every time there was a congressional hearing. I don't know the law on that, but I wish they had one because some of the elected officials are not lawyers. Some of them are. But none of them are practicing day-to-day drills in and out. Burke makes a living not courting voters, not mincing words, not giving up when he meets resistance, but holding witnesses' feet to the fire. He did that absolutely brilliantly. Now, this next bit is getting a lot of attention because it's where Lewandowski basically called himself a liar in his own media appearances, and you're hearing that everywhere. But the thing is, it's Burke's persistent questioning that ferrets that out. He gives Lewandowski plenty of rope to hang himself. Is it still your testimony, sir, that you made under oath earlier that you appeared voluntarily before the special counsel and not under a grant of immunity? To the best of my recollection, I I appeared in front of the special counsel voluntarily. Did you receive immunity, sir? Look, as Director Mueller stated when asked about Don Jr.'s communication to special counsel, his intent to invoke the Fifth Amendment right, Director Mueller said, and I quote, I'm not going to answer that. So if you want to direct that question, to Director Mueller, it's on page 77 of the report. You're welcome to do so. Did you receive immunity, sir? I've asked and answered your question. Sir, let me ask you, have you ever been untruthful about being asked to give answer questions of the special counsel? I've already testified. I've been honest to the best of my ability. Sir, let me show you another clip, and this one was from March 25th, 2018, from Meet the Press, March 25th, 2018. Have you met with the uh, special counsel, Robert Mueller? I know you've testified before the Senate and the House Intel investigations. What about the special counsel? Look, I have said very candidly, I'll be happy to speak with the special counsel if they'd like to do that. Uh, I've been very open about, I volunteered to testify for 12 hours in front of the House committee. I've testified in front of the Senate committee. And I'll make myself available because I was there at the very beginning of the campaign. Have they asked there for you no yet, collusion. though? Have they asked for not, you? Not yet, no. You've no, not been subpoenaed, yet, Chuck, nothing? But... Okay. Sir, was that truthful, what you said on national television on March 25th, 2018, that the special counsel had not asked to speak to you at that date? I don't know if they asked to speak to me by that date. So you know your interview that's reported in the special counsel report was on April 6, 2018. Is that accurate? Is yes. that the day of the interview? Yes. yes. 
If that's what the report says, and I'll take it to be accurate. And, sir, you made public statements denying that you had been asked to give answers to the special counsel when you actually had. You had been untruthful about that. Isn't that true, sir? Are we talking about a, a discussion with the media or in front of a committee of jurisdiction where I've been sworn to testify? I'm talking about your public statements to the American public. On oh, I'm sorry. Nobody in front of Congress has ever lied to the public before. I'm sorry. Sir, is that an admission that you did lie? Absolutely not. Did you lie, sir, in television interviews denying that you had been asked to give answers to the special counsel? I don't believe so. So you deny that you ever lied in public statements about whether you were no, asked? What I'm saying is when under oath, I've always told the truth, whether it was before special counsel, whether it was before the House Judiciary Committee, whether it was before the House Intelligence Committee on two separate occasions, or before the Senate Intelligence Committee. Every time I've raised my right hand to God, I've sworn and told the truth. That's not my question to you, sir. We'll get to that. My question to you, sir, is on national television, did you lie about your relationship with the special counsel and whether they sought your interview? I don't know. And, sir, did you lie about it because you didn't want the world to find out that you were afraid you could be exposed to criminal liability and you were only going to appear as to certain issues with a grant of immunity, protecting your words from being used against you in a criminal prosecution? I'm going to go back to what Director Mueller stated. He's not going to answer that question. I'm not going to allow you to use me as a backdoor into his methods. Now, the best analysis I've seen on this today comes from Jennifer Rubin in The Washington Post. And, of course, she's done a complete 180 since the days when the Republicans could do no wrong. She boiled down the 30 minutes of back and forth to these salient wins for the Democrats. Now, I'm abbreviating here. She expounds a lot more fully. But among her points, Burke made plain that Lewandowski took the fifth, and refused to testify for the special counsel unless granted immunity. He also showed Lewandowski clips of himself publicly stating that when you take the fifth, you've done something wrong. Then she notes Burke established that before asking Lewandowski to take a message to then-Attorney General Jeff Sessions, the White House just so happened to dangle a White House job before him. Burke established that Lewandowski was absolutely loyal to Trump, yet never delivered the message. Burke also established that Lewandowski wanted to have a private meeting with Sessions so there would be no record. In short, he made perfectly clear that Lewandowski's actions, refusing to deliver Trump instructions, demanding immunity, lying on TV, creating no record, demonstrated that he knew he was being asked to do something wrong or illegal, or I might add both. Excellent job by Jennifer Rubin and, of course, by Burke. Other news of the day, Trump flew in and out of the San Francisco Bay Area, gathering hefty donations from moneyed personages. Locations and guests were shrouded in deep secrecy for the sake of people without the courage of their convictions to be seen in the light of day. Cowardice can get you White House perks. And it was just 24 hours later that Trump stripped California of its long-time waiver that let us here have higher standards for automobile emissions, or lower standards, as the case may be. This is a twofer for Trump. He gets to please his fossil fuel buddies while indulging his toddler tantrum hatred of the Golden State. Stay tuned for more on this. Gavin Newsom is already on record saying that as governor, he will fight this. And on a practical level, I can't see auto production lines suddenly immediately pushing to produce less restricted systems. There's no gain there for them because the tug of war is going to go on. There will be court cases and there's no clear winner. They're not going to change things just to change them back. 
Besides, the industry titans were already working privately with California to keep the low emission standards intact. Before we leave Trump, I just have to add a major huzzah to Rex Hupke. He's a columnist for the Chicago Tribune. What a brilliant take on the whole California swing, especially the big baby's attack on not homelessness, but the homeless. Here's a sampling of his column. Quote, President Donald Trump once again showed the heart of a Christian, compassionately addressing the tragic issue of homelessness in large cities by placing the blame right where it belongs on the filthy, diseased, homeless wretches who are afflicting the wealthy. We have people living in our our best highways, our best streets, our best entrances to buildings, where people in those buildings pay tremendous taxes, where they went to those locations because of the prestige, Trump said. In many cases, they came from other countries and they moved to Los Angeles or they moved to San Francisco because of the prestige of the city. And all of a sudden, they have tents, hundreds and hundreds of tents and people living at the entrance to their office building and they want to leave. End quote. Hupke goes on to note that, quote, all the good, wealthy people wanted was the prestige that comes with having the best entrances to buildings. And the bad, poor people who are homeless and gross are robbing them of their prestige and making their entrances not the best. God would never want these poor, not money poor, of course, but unfortunate because their entrances are no longer best poor, people to suffer. And that's why our gift from God president said, we'll be doing something about that. He offered no specifics, but if what's past is prologue, it likely involves housing the homeless in sleek minimalist cages or stacking them on top of each other in the desert to build a boulder wall. You can find this whole thing of beauty online at the Chicago Tribune site. You got to give Trump credit. He never flags in which powers he really cares about. Them with the bucks. Another quick hit worth your time. Check out Kara Swisher's Recode Decode podcast, or you can read about it on Vox, for a really interesting take on education from an unexpected source. Blackstone CEO Steve Schwartzman is a direct advisor to Donald Trump with unexpectedly liberal streaks. He supports the $15 an hour minimum wage, and he just came up with an inspiration to make teaching a tax-free occupation. I don't know about you, but I've never heard that floated before. Now, here's what he said to Kara Swisher. Teachers are pretty poorly paid. We need to get them in a position where they can attract very high-quality people. One way to do that is to make teachers the only tax-exempt occupation in the United States that would give them a very large boost in income the day you did it, and they'd be marked apart as a prestige institution. And he goes on to note how valued teachers were when he was young. It's been a long time since then. Wait until Trump hears this one. He actually might hear about it, this one. It's, It's on Twitter. Up next, the founder of Moms Demand Action, Shannon Watts, on what really works for gun control. This is the broadcast. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the broadcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news 
five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com donate, and thanks. the broadcast. I'm Angie Coiro. Sandy Hook Promise is an organization that works to reduce gun violence by educating parents and others to see warning signs in advance. Wednesday, it released a public service announcement that starts out touting back-to-school supplies. Now, this could be a commercial from any retailer announcing a back-to-school sale. These colorful binders help me stay organized. Then it slowly gets more and more grim as you see the new tennis shoes helping a kid run away from gunshots down the hall. A new skateboard turned into a bludgeon to break a window for a getaway, again with gunshots in the background. It's pretty cool. Athletic socks used as a tourniquet on a bloody student. And saving the worst for last, a terrified girl in a closet tapping out a last message to her mom as she hears footsteps approaching. I finally got my own phone to stay in touch with my mom. It's a brilliant take. It doesn't directly confront the NRA, for example. Now, to be fair, that doesn't seem to be in Sandy Hook Promises brief. Moms Demand Action, by contrast, Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America definitely does have that in its brief. They're very direct in their actions. Shannon Watts was moved to start the group by that same tragedy, the Sandy Hook slaughter. You've probably heard of, or maybe seen for yourself, the attacks on her, the threatening of her life by gun radicals, to the point that she showed up for my interview with bodyguards. And everyone entering the venue, Kepler's Books in Menlo Park, California, had to have their bags screened at the door. I have never seen that there. And she came to talk about her book, Fight Like a Mother, how a grassroots movement took on the gun lobby and why women will change the world. Here's a bit of our conversation. I think one of the things that's constantly used against uh, Moms Demand is the idea that they're out to kill off the Second Amendment and they're anti-gun. Well, the NRA wants gun extremists to believe that we're anti-gun or that we're against the Second Amendment. The reality is many of our volunteers are gun owners or they're married to them. There are 400 million guns in this country. Uh, We even have a group of moms in the Midwest who call themselves camo moms. They hunt together. So, you know, we are the responsible gun safety organization that the NRA used to be in many ways. Um, But we are not opposed to the Second Amendment. We are not against gun rights. We are about restoring the responsibilities that go along with those rights that the gun lobby has chipped away at for decades. And you're not a Democratic or left group either. We are a nonpartisan organization willing to work with bipartisan uh, groups of legislators. We work across the aisle all the time. In fact, last year we were able to pass stronger gun laws in 20 states. Nine of those were signed by Republican governors. So let's go into the phrase, if we don't claim our motherhood as a tool, it will be used against us. How do you use that against someone? Well, that's been another interesting part of going up against the NRA, which is they immediately start attacking me as not a real mom. 
um, as someone who was astroturf, created by Mike Bloomberg or another man, that I couldn't possibly just be a genuine, authentic mom of five in Indiana who started this organization at her kitchen counter. And since then, the attacks have been uh, that we drink boxed wine in our driveway or that we take <laughs> Xanax or, you know, all of the cliches about American moms. Um, and the reality is, if you are a mom, you're more qualified to be a lawmaker in many cases than the lawmakers we have serving us right now. All the skills it takes, the negotiation, the budgeting, all of the different things that make us effective and good moms also make us great activists and even better lawmakers. You don't have to be a mom to experience how negative it can be to be a woman who opens her mouth. <laughs> in fact, you say society frowns on angry women. Yes. We are only allowed, I mean, this is sort of the double-edged sword of being a mom in activism. On one hand, women have been involved on the front lines of activism, particularly women of color, for decades and decades, um, and have been essentially invisible. And it is acceptable for us to be angry on behalf of someone else, namely children, right? Ever since we started getting involved in activism in this country during Prohibition, which Christian um, temperance was seen as a Christian value. At the same time, we have to be pragmatic. It would be wonderful if we were allowed to be angry on behalf of ourselves, and I believe that that is evolving as we have a seat at the table. But to be pragmatic is to look at the levers of power that we have available to us right now that we can pull. And as women, we're the majority of the population, we're the majority of the voting electorate, we make about 80% of the spending decisions for our families, and those are levers we can pull right now as long as we're only 20% of state lawmakers 25% of Congress, 5% of Fortune 1000 CEOs. Mm -hmm. You know, I remember a particularly appalling incident when Mom's Demand went before a legislature that decided they were all going to wear pearls to indicate what pearl clutchers you are. How did you deal with that? You as Mom's Demand. How did Mom's Demand well, deal with that? Well, it's an interesting story because um, I was actually going to Boston th that day. And they said to me, you know, you have extra time on your schedule. Why don't we send you to New Hampshire to watch a gun bill hearing? I was like, okay, sure. And I get there and I realize it's almost all white men on this panel and that they are wearing pearls. And I said, why are these grown men wearing pearls and semi-automatic pins on their lapels? And someone said, oh, they do that to mock moms to man action because they say we're pearl clutchers, that, you know, we're scared of guns. And these gun violence survivors were testifying horrible stories about gun suicides and gun homicides that had impacted their families. And these men are sitting there mocking everyone. And so I took a picture of it. And uh, needless to say, I spent the rest of my day with my phone blowing up because it went viral. And again, if you spend any time in your state house, you will very quickly learn that these people are not rocket scientists. And <laughs> that in fact, we are as qualified, if not more, than to make the laws that protect our families and communities. And it's not all that level of hostility. You actually dealt with an interviewer, and you didn't say which station this was, which I thought was very discreet, where the interviewer didn't seem to have any idea that you as a woman would be capable of doing what you do. And in fact, when you said that you had conducted interviews in your process yourself, you said you interviewed them? Yes. Yeah, so the, the thing about gatekeepers has been really interesting, too. I thought everyone would want to tell the amazing story of all these women in red shirts who were beating back the NRA, killing bad bills, passing good bills, that we would, you know, just constantly be, um, our stories would be told. And what I found was that most of these gatekeepers 
media are men. And they aren't that interested in telling the stories of middle-aged women and women of color in this country. So we had to figure out ways to do that ourselves. And social media is one of those tools. Well, let's talk about social media because that's a double-edged sword. One of the things we hear all the time is that it's just human nature. We silo ourselves off. We want to hear voices we agree with. You can, you know, delete or mute or block anyone you don't agree with. So how does an activist group use social media for outreach without just turning into an echo chamber? It is definitely a double-edged sword, using social media. Um, but I will say that we have been really effective at organizing online, both publicly, with public-facing, for example, Facebook pages, but also privately. We have really become savvy at using those tools. Um, certainly, they're filled with trolls, and there's a lot of gun extremists who aren't interested in our message, and it's a place where threats occur. But the value of being able to use it as a bullhorn. You know, the, the stories, for example, of, of women in red states who are organizing around this issue, which I never imagined there would be so much energy in states like Arkansas and Texas and Alabama. To be able to show what those women are doing, women and men, in those states and to highlight it on social media, that's how some of these stories get told and mm -hmm. people get interested. I can't wait for Morning Joe to have me on, for example. You know, I have to kind of go and do this myself. Right. When you do go on to the media now, now that you have prominence, you have a book out, you're starting to see even more media, are you being treated with respect? Absolutely. And, and, and I do think things have evolved. I think that people see the real tangible results that we have achieved over almost seven years. My frustration is that I'm so af often asked if I'm hopeless or if I'm cynical or if I feel like nothing has been accomplished since Sandy Hook. And so my job is to travel and to talk to, to media and to talk to volunteers and to talk to Americans about the fact that we're winning because cynicism and hopelessness is so dangerous when it comes to this issue. It keeps people from getting involved and they think they can't make a change. 100 Americans are shot and killed every day. We can't afford to be cynical. You pull out really specific numbers. 50 American women are shot and killed every month by domestic abusers, more than one a day. I wonder if the media is so saturated with so much violence, they don't see the benefit in getting that out there regularly. Maybe they want a new twist. Maybe they want something more cheerful. I don't know. How does something like that get more coverage? I think you're exactly right. I think that is a big part of it is that people ask, are Americans numb? Are you numb? I don't think Americans are numb to this. I don't think there's any parent in America who is numb to this. I think media run out of ways to tell the story. But the other thing that I've noticed, particularly recently, is that I think that media worry about seeming like they're taking a side. Mm -hmm. They feel like they have to be balanced and present all sides of an issue in which data and research has already weighed in. But even after the Virginia Beach shooting, for those of you who saw me fighting with Chris Cuomo on Twitter, you know, he was saying that oh, maybe it's because we're not kind enough to each other, or maybe it's polarization, or maybe it's video games. He even had an expert on saying that. There's no research that shows that any of those things cause gun violence. Right. What data and research show is that it's easy access to guns. And easy access to guns isn't necessarily changed by isolated gun laws. You talk about laws in Chicago versus laws in Indiana. There's one thin line in between them, but people look at Chicago and say, gun laws don't work. They got gun laws in Chicago. It's a war zone. Right. That's the Groundhog's Day of Twitter questions, as if Chicago should have the gun laws you want to have. Why aren't they safer? Um, you can drive a car 20 minutes from 
Chicago to Indiana, load up your truck with guns from a gun show, no background check required, drive right back and sell them to whomever you want. States are only as safe as the states near them with the strongest gun laws. And and guns go across car or state lines as easily as cars do. Mm-hmm. So that is why we're going state by state now, but what we really need is for Congress to act and pass federal laws. What's between now and getting the Congress to pass laws? What what are the logistical steps between now and then? So Congress actually the, the House just this year passed the first piece of sweeping gun reform legislation for the first time in any chamber for over two decades of, of, the, of Congress. That is an incredibly hopeful and good sign. Uh, Senator Pat Toomey, who's a Republican from Pennsylvania, has said that if it got a chance to be voted on, it would pass with at least 60 votes. Um, Lindsey Graham, another Republican, said recently that the Second Amendment is not a suicide pact. So we're starting to see the NRA stranglehold on our politicians. We're loosening it finger by finger. And we do that by showing how toxic their agenda is. Um, One thing that we're seeing that is a sea change in American politics is the fact that every single candidate right now, even the Republican primarying the president, support stronger gun laws. And they're competing to be the best on this issue. We've not seen that. How specific are they willing to be? Well, we've seen four or five of them put out very specific policy proposals. We know more are coming. We have something called a Gun Sense Candidate Questionnaire. And we started this in the last election cycle. We thought we'd give out a couple hundred because of these amazing people in red shirts. We gave out thousands. And we actually ended up giving 3,000 candidates the distinction. We have already given them to the presidential candidates, and we're waiting for that information to come back. But it isn't just about what are your proposals. It's do you prioritize this this issue? If you're elected, will you act on it quickly? Mm-hmm. What's the tell when you're talking to them? How do you know that you've got sincere attention? Well, we do now. Now that we have hundreds of thousands of volunteers, uh, these lawmakers know that if they do the right thing, we'll have their backs. If they don't, we'll have their jobs. And we've actually we've actually taken them ourselves in many states. Um, but. It's interesting because six years ago, we would go to, for example, Congress, and we would meet with lawmakers, and they'd look at their watch, and they'd be like, I have a floor vote. i got to (laughs) go. And now, you know, they want our attention. They want to talk to us. And frankly, many of them are scared if they don't. Actually, you've gotten downright sly about it, too, because it's hard for them to get to a floor vote when you have blocked the hallways with red shirts and strollers. Yes, yes. (laughs) That's right. And that's actually something that started just a few months into the organization. We were working to pass stronger gun laws in Maryland, and the halls were so blocked with baby paraphernalia that lawmakers couldn't get through, and we started calling them stroller jams. And, of course, we had a volunteer lawyer who trademarked that for us. Um, but, but it's very effective. Has he trademarked naptivism yet? <laughs> naptivism is another uh, mom-specific way of being an activist. And the point of naptivism is really that every action counts. It's like drips on a rock. If you only have an hour a day, you can use a hashtag or send an email or make a phone call. And, and as an example, um, we have worked with companies to change their policies, particularly as it pertains to open carry. And I can remember one weekend we saw people open carrying in a Chipotle. We had pictures. And using the hashtag burritos, not bullets, we got Chipotle to change their policy in three days just by tweeting, right? So 
Every single action counts, even if it's during nap time. <laughs> <laughs> well, the people who are worried that the Second Amendment is endangered, I mean, they have social media too. They have hashtags too. So occasionally it becomes like a battle of the hashtags. Talk about how you were successful with open carry at Starbucks. As I mentioned, we have certain levers of power we can pull. One of them is our spending power. And so I can remember on the news in June of 2013, Starbucks said they were no longer going to allow cigarette smoking 20 feet outside their stores, even electronic cigarettes, regardless of state law. So we called them and said, well, open carry is legal in 45 states, and you all don't see it here in California, but I see it in Colorado. You can strap an AR-15 onto your chest or put a gun loosely in your pocket and go into a restaurant or retailer if they allow it in 45 states. Uh, a very unsafe practice because who knows who's the bad guy when everyone is armed like that. So I called that we, we called them. We said, are you still going to allow open carry? And they said, yes, we'll still follow state laws as it pertains to guns. So we decided to embark on something we called a mom cot. And we were so small, we couldn't even do a full-out boycott. We had to do skip Starbucks Saturdays. And even then, the soccer moms gave me a very hard time about not getting their <laughs> coffee on Saturday. But we showed pictures of how we were having coffee at competitors. Um, we used that hashtag. But we also made images of open carry inside Starbucks go viral. And I don't know if you remember seeing those pictures, but like people with AR-15s getting lattes, which when you see the absurdity of that, you realize that doesn't look safe. And within three months, Howard Schultz came out on national television and said, guns are no longer welcome inside our stores, full stop, not even just open carry. And we were like, oh, we're on to something here. We have, some, we have some serious power. And we replicated that at least a dozen other restaurants and retailers. But flash forward, we don't have to drag companies kicking and screaming into this issue anymore. They're coming to us and saying, not only how do we change our policies, but how do we join your coalition? What do you hear from companies like Home Depot who just, they're not having it? Well, Home Depot, and, and there's some companies with conservative boards, Kroger, by the way, don't shop at Kroger or any of their brands. They allow open carry all across the country. There are some companies that haven't moved yet. I don't think it's any different than any other social issue. But the fact that Levi's and Tom's Shoes and Dick's Sporting Goods and other major companies are coming to us and saying, we want to get off the sidelines. When lawmakers don't protect their constituents, we have an obligation to protect our customers. That is a cultural signal. Another trick that you have perfected is getting a number of people to show up within half an hour's notice yes. or an hour's notice when there's going to be a vote. And you're talking about moms. Moms are picking kids up. They're you know busy doing all kinds of things. So how do you manage to get enough people who are willing to drop everything and go where they need to be? So we have learned that putting our eyeballs on people is the best way to stop bad bills from passing and to help good bills to pass, showing up. And keep in mind, it's not dozens or hundreds of Moms Demand Action volunteers versus dozens or hundreds of gun owners or gun extremists or NRA members. It's all of us versus one or two gun lobbyists. And we realized by showing up that we had a serious advantage. And so the best example of this is in Oklahoma, where you only have to give 24 hours notice when there's a gun bill hearing, for obvious reasons. And so a man who is a Moms Demand Action volunteer, he's a 70-year-old veteran. He proudly wears his Moms Demand Action t-shirt. He created an old-fashioned phone tree. So when he finds out they have 24 hours to get people out, he activates his phone tree, and dozens and dozens of Moms Demand Action volunteers show up in Oklahoma. 
and it's how we've defeated many bad bills. Mm -hmm. They're also willing to take their knitting along and do breastfeeding there. Yes, knitting, <laughs> breastfeeding, um, drawing, uh, candy crush. There are so many different <laughs> habits and, and pastimes for the state house. Come on, tell about the guy who got unnerved by the knitting because that yes. was priceless. So uh, our Oregon moms are not kidding around about the knitting. Like there are entire <laughs> wardrobes made um, during the, the legislative session. And... This one man told him he was very offended that while he was testifying, they had been knitting and asked them if they would stop, but they didn't. <laughs> Let's get to some of the questions. Why is the NRA so motivated to prevent any change or protection? Is it money? Do they make money from gun sales? Yeah, it is full stop money. Uh, the NRA used to be a sporting fishing organization, and then in the 70s, there was literally a coup where some members took over who felt strongly that they should be a lobbying organization to force laws that would expand gun rights. The other thing that happened was in the early 2000s, the NRA realized they were selling, or gun manufacturers were selling more guns to fewer people, and that they were selling them to a demographic that was aging out, basically white men over the age of 60. So they would have to broaden the generations they were selling guns to, the segments of population, and how do you do that? You force guns onto college campuses. You arm just a fraction of the millions of teachers in this country. You pass something called permitless carry so that you have guns for anyone, anywhere, anytime, no questions asked. And you pass stand your ground, which makes everyone feel like they're always under attack. And so they've armed dangerous people, and now they're going to arm us to protect the dangerous people. And the bottom line from all of that is more gun sales. Shannon Watts, more on her book and her methodology for taking on the gun lobby, Coming up next on the broadcast. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the broadcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. Why? Because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. It's okay. You're listening to the broadcast. I'm Angie Quero, sitting in for Brad and Desi, continuing with excerpts from a conversation with Shannon Watts about her book, Fight Like a Mother. And the American Legislative Exchange Council is, is cheek by jowl with the NRA. They're a very shadowy organization. Uh, Jane Mayer has been very good mm -hmm. about getting their information out there. How do you deal with someone that's so much more behind the scenes than the NRA? Well, we have said since the very beginning, uh, one of our Texas moms famously said, our job is to shine a light under the refrigerator and force the cockroaches to run out at the NRA. <laughs> uh, and that's what we've been doing for almost seven years is to show how insidious they have been to expose the fact that there's dark money involved in the $30 million they gave Donald Trump, to expose the fact that Wayne LaPierre is spending members' dollars on Italian suits from Beverly Hills and private jet travel. Um, to talk about the fact that they've been infiltrated by one of the worst spies, I think, in the history of spies, uh, Maria Butina. <laughs> Not very good at her job, but um, that, that they've been infiltrated, essentially, by a Russian spy. And to tell all these stories to the media, to lawmakers, because sunlight is the best disinfectant. 
And the NRA has a reputation for being very powerful and almost immune to everything. But you cover in the book, and one of our audience members just brought up, that their financial situation is not grand, and they've had a financial scandal now. What is that doing to the strength of the NRA? The NRA is weaker than they have ever been in the history of their organization. I would never, yeah. I would never count them down and out. They were weak in the 1990s as well. They came back. All it required was a Democratic president. Um, so I really think that going into the, this election cycle, it's so important to take advantage of the fact that they have their hands tied behind their back. Something I'm incredibly proud of is that we not only outmaneuvered the NRA in the midterm elections, we outspent them. That is a sea change in um, how these elections have gone in the past. Mm -hmm. If someone who's a responsible gun order, hobbyist, shooter, whatever, hunter, where do they go for the kind of companionship and, you know, just getting together the NRA originally offered or the training that they originally offered? Well, Moms Demand Action is one place you could come for, to meet responsible gun owners. But look, only one in 10 gun owners in this country even belongs to the NRA. And when you look at polling, 80% of gun owners support stronger gun laws. A Republican poll found that 74% of NRA members support stronger gun laws. This is not a polarizing issue, as much as it may seem like it. It's the vast majority of Americans versus the gun lobby and some lawmakers who are beholden to them. Mm -hmm. Another question. One thing that helped end the Vietnam War was images of the coffins of American soldiers coming home. Do you see a chance to sway public opinion by sharing images from school shootings? So I, I understand where this question comes from because that is exactly what the mother of Emmett Till did. Um, it's a, a very controversial subject. I know that some parents have shown lawmakers the bodies of their children in private to bring home how uh, dangerous weapons of war are on the streets of this country. But at the same time, I've also talked to so many survivors, particularly parents and children who say that the worst moment of their life was seeing their child, mm -hmm. their child's body, and that they can barely preserve the memories they have, and that they feel very strongly about the ownership of those images, whether it's before they were injured or after, and that they don't want those shared. So this is a situation in which I would follow the lead of survivor families. How do they cope with the people and organizations that go on YouTube or mm. other channels and say, this was all actors, it was all a false flag, operation. This never happened. How do they deal with that? It's just so bizarre and perverse and obscene that anyone would make a living like Alex Jones off the grief and the suffering of victims and survivors' families. And entire lives have been ruined by this behavior. I would strongly recommend anyone who hasn't listened to um, The Daily. There's a podcast called The Daily, and they did a whole feature about this issue and how Alex Jones and his followers have haunted, in particular, the families of Sandy Hook survivors, gone through their trash, um, it confronted them in grocery stores, and just made what was the worst moment of their lives an extended living hell. Have you ever thought of a way to strike compromise with the NRA that creates a win-win? <laughs> uh, so there is no compromise to be had with the NRA leadership. And, and part of that is because not only are they very extreme and radicalized, they have been pulled right by state gun rights organizations. So where I live, they're called the Rocky Mountain Gun Owners. 
and they truly believe that any law whatsoever is an infringement on the Second Amendment and will, is a slippery slope to, that will lead to confiscation. The NRA has been pulled right by them, just like Republicans have been pulled right by the Tea Party. And they can't come to the middle. And that is why I am so fascinated by the attorney general in New York um, who is investigating the NRA because that's where they're chartered in the state of New York. And she has the power, and I just love it because she's a woman of color, and it would be so great if she disintegrated the NRA, but um, <laughs> she has the power to undo their board and also to dismantle the members of the leadership team. What is she investigating? She's investigating whether they're misspending their money, um, and there's also a situation where they had something called carry guard. Uh, people have called it murder insurance, but basically the NRA was selling insurance that if you shot someone in a defensive way, it would cover all the costs of that uh, to defend yourself. It included psychological and cleanup costs, which is really disturbing, but they believe that they were selling insurance in a way they shouldn't have been. Well, let's talk about some of the laws that have come out. You mentioned Stand Your Ground. And Stand Your Ground, like a lot of gun laws and gun access, has a disproportionate effect on people of color. It's not something that hurts as much middle-class white Americans. It's got a disproportionate effect. It does. And where they started this, this law, we always say that Florida is the petri dish for the NRA. So the NRA goes into Florida, sees what the most extreme laws it can pass and win, and then it tries to extrapolate them to other states. And it passed Stand Your Ground really first in Florida. And we have seen now, we have enough years of data to show that it disproportionately impacts people of color, um, that they are most likely to be shot and, and people will defend themselves using this law, and that people who shoot them are white and they often get off because of it. And the NRA has tried to pass this law in many other states. This year, though, um, we were able to play great defense. They tried to pass it in three states. We stopped it in every single one, including the state of Arkansas, believe it or not. One of the things that you mentioned in the book is that you have so many victories that don't get covered, that yeah, it's an uphill battle in some ways, but you're having so many successes. Why don't they get to the news? Well, I think playing defense isn't that sexy. You know, the fact that we killed a thousand NRA bills last year isn't that interesting because they didn't go into effect. Um, I think the fact that middle-aged women and women of color are doing this work is part of it as well. And everyone is waiting for this cathartic moment in Congress that hasn't come. Now, don't forget that the NRA should have been able to pass their priority legislation with a Republican president and a Republican Congress for two years. They wanted to pass something called concealed carry reciprocity, which would have made the lowest permitting status in the country the law of the land. So if you had a permit in Alabama with no live fire training, you're 16, you have violence in your background, you could bring it here uh, to this city. That, that's their dream. It's a public safety nightmare. We played defense, they didn't pass it. They wanted to deregulate silencers. They also didn't pass that. So I think because people are waiting for this cathartic moment in Congress, some background checks, something big passes both chambers of Congress. Until that happens, I think we'll always be playing this game of whether we're winning or not. Well, in fact, one of our audience asks, HRH, HR8 just passed the House. What can we do to get Mitch McConnell to take it up in the Senate? <laughs> I wish I knew the answer to that. <laughs> I, I think it's so important to remember when you get involved in this activism that it is a marathon and not a sprint. 
you are not going to have overnight wins. And we have a saying, which is that sometimes entire football games are won by field goals. And I don't understand football at all, but I do understand that concept, which is that small victories will lead you to the ultimate big victory, victory that you're looking for. So when we talk about HR8 passing the House, it's important to remember that the person who co-sponsored that bill was Lucy McBath. And Lucy McBath is a former volunteer with Moms Demand Action whose son, Jordan Davis, a black teen, was shot and killed by a white man who said his music was too loud. And Lucy was an activist with us for years. And she said, one day I'm thinking about running for office. And I thought, okay, great, you'll be a wonderful state rep. She decided to run for Congress <laughs> and won a seat held by Republicans for 30 years. It was Newt Gingrich's old seat. And the first thing she did five days into this session was to co-sponsor H.R. 8. And she has passed many other or co-sponsored many other pieces of legislation in Congress since. So that is the story of, of how do you ultimately get to the victory? It is all these little wins along the way. Mm -hmm. And there are wins with talking to individuals. And you had a story in the book about the woman who started Mom's Demand in Oklahoma. Her dad was on the other side mm -hmm. of the question. And you say that she kept inviting him to events and eventually he became a supporter. Can you say more about how that, what kind of conversations did they have? What were his turning points? I always say, you know, we don't need to convince the vocal minority that they need to vote with us because the silent majority, the more and more vocal majority is on our side. All we need to get to them to do is vote. However, sometimes those vocal minority uh, members are in your family or they're your neighbors. And so it is important to have conversations. What I have found is that fact-based conversations, we have tons of data on our website. We even have a campaign called Let's Talk Turkey, where we explain to people what to say at the Thanksgiving table if this issue comes up. <laughs> um, but to have those conversations and to use data and research and not just anecdotes or emotion. Um, you know, my dad and my stepmom both voted for Donald Trump. They did not like the work that I was doing when I first started Moms Demand Action. And we had more and more conversations over the years. And last year, they both showed up in Moms Demand Action t-shirts at the Wear Orange event uh, in Illinois. So there, there can be evolution. Now, I don't mean to be flippant about this, but I, I do know that wear orange is difficult around here because we've got the giant. <laughs> Everybody just thinks you're a Giants fan. Yeah. <laughs> I got it. Since the CDC has been blocked from effectively researching gun violence, what would be some other options to continue that important work? Well, we're actually, we have a campaign going on right now that you can find on our website where we are working to get more funding made available to the CDC. It's incredibly important. In the 90s, the NRA was able to get Congress to stop funding research on gun violence. So we don't really understand the extent of the crisis or how to solve it. But thankfully, there are organizations doing research like Johns Hopkins, um, our organization, Every Town, which we're the grassroots army of Every Town. They're doing a lot of research. It does exist, and it is available at our website. The difference is that it's not funded by the government right. anymore. Do you think if we see a Democratic president, that will change? I think it'll be one of the first things they do. You've made some strange bedfellows. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's the bottom line. Do you support sane gun legislation? And over and above that, Mobs Demand will affiliate with people who may turn off a lot of people mm -hmm. in the base. And you've lost some folks on occasion because of that. You talk about a situation with one particular preacher who's very anti-choice. And I found myself wondering, is there anyone who would be beyond the pale 
that if they were looking for, you know, to enact good gun laws, but they were a white supremacist. Oh, my gosh. You know, of course. We're just talking about people who believe gun violence should be part of their pro-life platform, right? So for so long, we've heard the religious community say that they're pro-life, but gun violence was never a part of that. And in this specific instance, um, it is another story about evolution. So Reverend Shank, there's a, an amazing movie called Armor of Light that stars Reverend Shank and Lucy McBath, who's now the congresswoman. And he was a very strident, um, anti-choice figure in the 80s. And his position evolved not only on gun violence, but he actually supports Roe versus Wade now. So that was a lot of conversations, particularly with Lucy McBath. We would certainly never partner or affiliate with anyone who was a misogynist or a racist or a bigot. This is just about saying, even if you join our organization and you're progressive, you have to understand that we are a single issue organization. We're not all single issue voters. We don't live single issue lives. But when you wear the Red Moms to Man Action shirt, when we go into state houses, we are going to work with Republicans. And we are going to talk about how to change hearts and minds on this issue because 100 Americans are killed every day. We don't have any time to waste. One of the things that you decided to do as a group that I found really impressive, there was always this dialogue. 20 people get shot at once, and immediately the word comes down from the mountain. It's too soon to talk about <laughs> gun control. And your group made the decision, well, you're not going to shut us up. We are going to talk about gun control. And I'm sure you got pushback on that. How did that evolve for you? I actually just started doing it on Twitter after there were mass shootings. I would start saying, this is preventable. This is senseless. This issue is political because we're allowing the gun lobby to write our nation's gun laws. And that I will not wait we don't wait after an airplane crash to talk about, you know, whether we can resolve this or, or solve it in the future because we need the black box, right? We start talking right away about safety. And gun violence is no different. The reason that we're told by pundits and politicians that it's too soon is because they want us to forget. And we so often do in this country. We just move on to the next shooting tragedy. So the best time to talk about how to address gun violence is after there has been gun violence. You've got a whole appendix about how to talk to children about guns, and a number of people are asking about that. And I'd like you to couple that with the story of your son's mm. evolving view of guns, which was really kind of dismaying, but going from fear to almost indifference. Yeah, my son um, was very impacted by the Aurora shooting, which happened just six months before the Sandy Hook shooting. And he was actually going to Batman with his older sisters that night. Unfortunately, he saw in the news that there'd been this shooting, and he started having an anxiety attack in the theater. He was crying. He ran out. And it was many, many weeks of him sleeping on our floor and being terrified of everything and having a lot of anxiety. And so when Sandy Hook happened, all the TVs were off. Finally, I sat him down Sunday because I knew he would hear about it at school. And he just looked at me and said, that's what happens in America, Mom. Like, he wasn't anxious because he felt like this was normal. And it's so important given how much gun violence there is in this country to have conversations with kids. The other complicating factor is our lockdown drills. And a lot of our volunteers come to us when there's been a lockdown drill. And I just want to say briefly something about lockdown drills. There is no data that shows putting your children through lockdown drills is effective. There's no data. Now, if teachers and adults want to drill, have at it. But there is data showing that lockdown drills cause anxiety and depression in children. 
And it's something we need to be talking about as a country. Right now in the state of Indiana, they are trying to push through a bill that would allow teachers to be shot with rubber bullets during an active shooter drill. So they would feel the adrenaline rush of what an active shooting would feel like. And just keep in mind that most lawmakers are men, most school officials are men, and most teachers are women. And we have to use our voices on this issue. You're not saying that all the men are on the wrong side. No. no. I'm just saying that, that women are not having a say in the laws and the policies that protect our children because we're not making them, because we're not in positions of power, and because we don't hold legislative positions. We're not, we don't have equal seat at the table. So we do have to use our voices. We do have to talk to school boards. We do have to have conversations about this because these lockdown drills have really become obscene. So what are ways to talk to kids about this? It depends on the age range, and I talk about this in the book. Um, you should have candid conversations, but you should also protect them from the gory details. You should ask kids how they're doing and make sure they're okay. Um, and, you know, I think it's important to protect them from constantly seeing this kind of information on the news. Is there a place for toy guns? You know, my son, I have four girls and one boy, and he was never exposed to guns. And the first thing he did at age four was to take all of their Barbies from the bathtub and turn them into guns, um, <laughs> despite my best efforts. So, you know, I have never seen data or research that shows video games or playing with toy guns leads to gun violence. What leads to gun violence in this country is easy access to guns. Mm -hmm. Let's start talking about becoming an activist and taking care of yourself as an activist. One of the things that you say is you need to be careful whose voices you let in your head. And that's not just about trolls. That's about building up yourself as an activist. So talk about that. Yeah, self-care is such an important part of what we do. We talk about how this is a marathon, not a sprint. It isn't going to happen overnight, but at the same time, it's also a relay race. And I think we've created this structure that allows us to pass the baton when we're feeling overwhelmed or exhausted or we have to prioritize something else in our lives. I've had to do that myself. Uh, about two years in, and I talk about this in the book, I have a daughter who developed an eating disorder. And there would be times that I would be driving to the airport and I would just call and say, I can't make it. I cannot come to this event. I have to be with my daughter. And everyone has to do that when you're an activist. Um, some of our volunteers have carved out almost a full-time work week in addition to all the other things they have to do. So it's important to rest and to recuperate and to find things um, that regenerate you and make you feel like you can get back in when you're ready. Mm -hmm. But in terms of listening to the voices, it's, it's really about trusting your intuition and knowing whether you've taken on too much or if you can take on more and following that. Mm -hmm. And well-intentioned naysayers. Yeah, I mean, look, when I started the organization, I had plenty of people tell me I wasn't the right person, it wasn't the right time, it already existed, it wasn't gonna work, I didn't know enough. And if I had listened to them, I wouldn't have done this. And so everyone has to jump in, and if you fail, you fail. I think women so often in particular feel like they have to be perfect mm -hmm. and that uh, anything less than perfection in public is just too horrible to bear. And it's okay to fail. Shannon Watts with Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America, recorded earlier this year for my show In Deep with Angie Cuero. You can find the whole thing online. It's a whole hour long at indeepradio.com slash podcasts. And that is a wrap for today's installment of the broadcast. Nicole Sandler will usher you through the agonies and joys of tomorrow's news. Keep sending your good wishes to Brad and Desi through the Brad blog, please. And see you soon. Until then, 
Good luck, world.